Happy Saturday. It's March 19th, 2022, and you are listening to Morning Meeting. I'm Ashley Baker. And I'm Michael Haney. And we are two of your deputy editors here at Airmail. Ashley, buenos dias. (laughs) I am in Spain. Are you in Barcelona, uh, Madrid? Where are you today? I am out in the countryside of Andalusia, having an incredibly relaxing and restorative time. My kids are on spring break, so that explains our travel moment here. Insanity is swirling around us, and we are trying to maintain a sense of calm, and that is what we are going to deliver here today on this podcast, Michael, come hell or high water. Insanity is swirling. So so that means like I'm, I'm stuck here in New York City this week with the St. Patrick's Day parade, so that's my insanity swirling around me, so, but... Other than that, you know. What are your plans, Michael? Pub crawl? Ah, oh, man, I'm still hungover from it. I, you can't even tell. <laughs> a good thing the camera's not on. It's really tough for you because between SantaCon and St. Patrick's Day, you can't really choose a favorite. Like, you like to be everywhere. Oh, and then I got, you know, and, and, and then I've got uh, the Kentucky Derby on the horizon. I mean, it just keeps getting, you know, it's springtime. It just keeps coming. Well, got a really dishy issue of Merrimail, as always, and some important stories to discuss. I think there's so much being said about what's happening now. We're not going to delve too much into the politics of it, but we have a wonderful story from Laura Heim in the issue this week about the old war photographers that are making this conflict, uh, that are making the invasion of Ukraine their last hurrah. I loved this story, Michael. Yeah, I was like, I don't know if it's possible to look at this conflict through rose-colored glasses at this point, but we are seeing some incredible stories of humanitarianism and generosity and courage. Over the last week or so, we've already seen some of the cost of covering the war. So far, at least three journalists have been killed while reporting, and we have a very powerful and moving piece this week by Laura Heim, a French-American journalist who covered the war in Iraq and other major stories. This story is, as I said, sort of the older band of brothers, Uh, the story of how many of the greatest war photographers of the 20th century, and indeed the past 50 years, many of them in their 70s now, have come out of retirement to go to Ukraine many without assignments and paying their own way in order to bear witness to the war and the suffering there. So, welcome, Laura. Thank you so much. Very, very nice to join you. So you have this piece. Tell us about it and how you came to uh, land this piece. So I'm an independent journalist, and like all independent journalists, we are watching what's happening in Ukraine at this moment. And uh, when uh, there's a big story in the past 20 or 30 years, at one point you you begin to call uh, the clients and you also begin to call your colleagues to ask questions about what are you doing? Are you going? What's going to happen? Do you have an assignment? Uh, uh, What do you think this story is going into which direction? Usually in the past 20 or 30 years, it always has been, okay, let's go. Uh, Time magazine or Newsweek is going to send me or French TV is going to send me. Uh, It's going uh, to uh, be uh, very important for us to all witness what's happening. And then in Ukraine, uh, at the beginning of the conflict, suddenly uh, when I was calling people, uh, when I was asking, do you have an assignment? I realized that a lot of the people I knew, a lot of the people have been on the road 20 or 30 years ago in difficult different places. Everyone was telling me, uh, I don't have a client. I don't have anyone. And then I was extremely moved by the fact that after 24 hours, uh, most of the people I knew were telling me, I don't care, I'm going. 
I have to go. This is very important. And uh, I'm not going to wait anymore for an editor to answer me. So I'm paying my ticket plan and I'm going because I have to be there. This is the most important story of our lifetime. So I have to be there. So it was also a question of generation because the people who did that, most of them did the Sarajevo siege together. They did the Balkan Wars together. They went to Grozny in 1995. They saw what happened in Grozny, in Chechnya and it was extremely violent. And then uh, some of them went to cover the siege of Kiev in 2014, and they did amazing work there. And I think for them it was impossible not to go. It was not a question of money. It was not a question of fame. It was, and it still is for most of them, more important than anything else to document what's happening and to witness history. And so they went for the piece. I spoke with them. The same words came back. I have to be there. Just to identify some of these, there are these titans of 20th century photojournalism. You've got James Nachtway, who was eminent former Time Magazine combat photographer. Patrick Chaval, who's 72. Nachtway, who's, who was in his, uh, who's 74, celebrated his 74th birthday in Kiev. But Chaval, who's 72, who said to his wife, I'm not going to be gardening while all this is happening, right? Yeah, and they're all saying that. And uh, I spoke with their wives, and uh, it was really interesting because all of them were saying, they don't know what else to do. They have done many conflicts. Chauvel did 34 conflicts. Uh, Natchwe uh, did so many conflicts. He witnessed so many things. And he really, it was the necessity to be there. And what is interesting is that I think they all decided collectively that, again, it's their life. And over 60 or over 65 Everything they saw, everything they went through, no matter what, they still have to do it to document history. I think just for our listeners, I think to give some context, you know, you talk about how none of these guys, as the titans that they are, as esteemed as they are, what they have witnessed in terms of human war and conflict and why they couldn't find any assignments is basically the money for that has dried up in many publications, right? So these guys, they said, screw it, right? Yeah. The thing is that in the past 10 years, they all realized that the newspapers industry has tremendously changed. And uh, they spoke about that all the time. They cannot find any assignment. Usually uh, when I began to work with them, and I was 20 years old at the time, I remember that in 1992, uh, we were in Nairobi and and uh, we had to cover what happened in Somalia and a big American publication and French TV took a private plane to fly us to uh, Mogadishu to witness what was happening. And it was the golden age of a serious type of uh, journalism and photojournalism. Now it's completely over. And it has been over for a long time. And the question for all of them uh, has been, how do I go on? How do I witness what's happening? How do I make a living for my family? And then Ukraine was, okay, it doesn't matter anymore. We have, as I told you, uh, to do it. I think what was important for me uh, was 
to uh, respect also something and they're all because they don't like to speak about themselves and that's really important to explain uh, you see sometimes on hollywood movies the foreign correspondent living in a hotel and there's the fantasy about oh my god this foreign correspondent this is the opposite all of them have very strong personalities but All of them are not the Hollywood stars playing the war photographers with, you know, uh, a lot of stereotypes. They didn't want, most, some of them, for the piece, didn't want to be interviewed. They didn't want to answer me because they were saying, it's not about us. It's about what we see and what we want to show to the world. You have to understand something. Those guys, they dedicated their lives to photojournalism. They took risks. Uh, their families sometimes uh, sacrificed a lot of things. They went on and on and on. And suddenly now when they're pitching editors, the phone doesn't ring anymore. No one is answering them anymore. Uh, no one is even giving them a budget to cover an important story. And all of them, when you really push them, they're all saying, what do you remember about the Second World War? What do you remember about Tiananmen? What do you remember about Iraq? Do you remember a correspondent in front of a camera with a flat jacket? Or do you remember an image or a picture? You know, you, you talk about these guys, they're, they're old enough to be collecting social security, as you say, but they've decided to put that on pause to cover what is the largest mobilization of forces in Europe since 1945. And as you said, I mean, this detail of Nachtway boarding a train to Kiev and he sends a group message to the old guy saying, I'm arriving with three bags by train. I don't have a car. I sure could use a lift if anyone is in town and not busy shooting, right? I mean, so this is not Hemingway at the Ritz Hotel with three suites. These are guys who, with creaky joints, but they still feel this commitment and this calling to cover and to bear witness. Yeah, and I want to tell your audience, and I'm, very, I'm going to be very provocative about that. If you're working in Hollywood... And if you do a beautiful movie like Good Night, Good Luck, or Under Fire, or The Years We Were, or whatever about journalism, and if you're fascinated near your swimming pool about, oh, those guys are so courageous, don't do movies. Help them. Take your dollars and finance those guys to witness history. That's how they're going to do journalism now. Because no newspaper is going to use them. But you, you philanthropist, you're in Hollywood, you have a lot of power, you like to speak about humanitarian work and everything. Please stop to do movies with your actors. Help the real over 60 years old who are there on their own to document what's happening. That's beautifully said. And it's a beautiful piece. And um, I think I'd encourage you all, all to read it, of course, not just for what Laura's got, but I think there's a list of names in there and I'd encourage you to look many of them up and see their work and see why it's so important to keep guys like this working and as well as women who are the next generation. But um, because to put a point on it, people like Putin are hoping these images are not seen, right? And yet the power of these images is to help end the war or draw attention to the suffering that needs to be solved. Well, Laura, thank you for... Um 
bringing us a story. It's uh, it's in many ways you've left us speechless. You're welcome. Thank you. Thank you very much, and we'll talk to you soon. You know a story that will make you cry, Ashley? In a good way. In a good way is this beautiful piece of reporting by Antonia Hoyle. And it is about Elena Zelenska, who is the first lady of Ukraine. And it tells the story of how they met and this incredible bond and deep love that is at the root of their relationship and clearly is where the two of them draw their strength and uh, energy in this time, right? As I read the story, I thought, what a fabulous movie this would be. Well, Michael, first of all, tell us, how did they meet? They were both at the same university. It was in 1995. Zelensky was an, 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 a new undergraduate there, and he bumped into Elena on the street and asked to borrow a video she was carrying, despite, he says, having watched the film eight times before, just in order to have an excuse to ask for her phone number so he could arrange to return it. The romance blossomed with Vladimir describing how he fell in love deeply and irrevocably in that moment. These two are in love. Let's hope that that's going to pull them through these incredibly difficult days that they're enduring right now. Yeah, I mean, it's in, in, in the reality, you know, she says, you know, she's targeted, she's basically target number two for Putin. But I mean, just if you really read this piece, I encourage you because it reminds you how she's risen to this role, this horrific new role with astonishing bravery. And she's refused to flee the country with the couple's children. And, and it's galvanized not only Ukraine, but it seems the rest of the civilized world. You know, she wrote... Just hours after the war, after the Russians attacked, she said, I will not have panic and tears. I will be calm and confident. My children are looking at me. I will be next to them and next to my husband and with you all in Ukraine. You talk about Zelensky, obviously, and his influence on history. And But there was a story, uh, I think it was in the Daily Mail this week, about another small effect Zelensky is ha- having on uh, leaders around the world, particularly Macron in Paris. Did you see this story? I did not. Okay, so Zelensky, obviously, I mean, the guy is at war. He's, you know... Every time you see him, he's in a sweatshirt and the stubble and he's dressed for combat, right? There was a story, a photograph of Macron with his cabinet and a guy who's usually in, you know, the crisp blue, deep blue suit, white shirt and, 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 uh, and a solid tie. So they're wondering, is this the Zelensky effect? Because he was photographed in his palace room there in, in the Elysee Palace with his, and he was dressed in a black hooded sweatshirt and black jeans. So is it now like, oh, I've got to look really combat butch as well. Before we leave Paris entirely, we've got a great report from Alec Lebrano. Alec has discovered, as always, one of the coolest things in Paris right now. And it turns out it is, of all things, a gasoline stand. Now, look, if you're going to be paying 25 euros a gallon for gasoline, it might as well be a pleasant experience. And as Alec writes, there's a charming little new shop in the 7th arrondissement of Paris, right around the corner for the Musée Rodin on the Boulevard des Invalides. And it is called Gasoline Stand. That would be with a Z. And it is incredibly stylish and cool. Uh, This thing is stocked with matcha-flavored Kit Kats and fancy sodas from Japan, uh, all kinds of cool things to buy in addition to being extremely good looking. It's the brainchild of this guy I remember meeting years ago in Paris, uh, Ram Dantamani, who he created this very successful brand, right? Ashley, what was it called? L'Officine Universelle Bully à Paris, which was a brand of 
perfume, toiletries, and cosmetics that he created with his wife, wife Victoire de Tayac, and it was sold last fall to LVMH. Uh, de Tayac is a known quantity for those in the fashion crowd. She was the head of PR at Colette, Restmate Rest in Peace, which was the hippest concept store in Paris for many years. And the couple is also fairly well known for having resurrected Cire Trudon, the French candle manufacturer founded in 1643 and found in the powder rooms of the most stylish all over the world. Yeah, I love anything he does. It's uh, he's, he's a guy who's always sort of figuring out how to revitalize things and and uh, so as it but it has become the kind of stop to make in Paris and what I what I love is you know he's got a sweatshirt there for sale that uh, says death to hipsters oh Michael always so dark with you come on love the hipsters and then he's got a uh, t-shirt with a gas station attendant uh, printed on it that reads yeah it, it says Pompiste Anarchiste Parisien, which translates to Anarchist Parisian Gas Station Attendant. It's much more charming in French. Yeah. But, I, you know, of course, I saw something I thought, like, the, the only gas station I've always loved is if, if you're a fan of the movie uh, Umbrellas of Schoborg is the final scene that takes place at a gas station. And I've always been pictured, like, this maybe might be a little bit like that, but it's just makes me keep wanting to book that trip to Paris. Speaking of fairly frivolous matters, not to say that like good-looking Kit Kat bars are frivolous, but we have a great story by Holly Peterson in the issue. She takes us down to Palm Beach where the latest extension of interior design is one's private beach or pool cabana. So you have to de- you have to you have to decipher this for me. I I've never participated in a segment of society, so Break it down for me. Because when I hear cabana, I just think like a, a thing where like you have two beach chairs in it. But this, this sounds like it's its own little standalone little, explain it to us. Well, look, I'm not a Floridian and I never go to Florida, but I have been to beach cabanas elsewhere. And, and usually, you know, let's say you're a member of a beach club or you've got a little pool house at the end of your pool, right? It used to be a fairly, shoddy is the wrong word, but a fairly low maintenance affair, couple beach chairs, you know, stack of magazines, maybe a little table. If you're feeling ambitious, a corkscrew, all good. But now a lot of these well-to-do Floridians, especially in Palm Beach, are enlisting their interior designers to trick out their beach cabanas, whether it's on the beach or at a club, like, you know, some of the private country clubs down there. Some of them have a membership that comes with one of these beach cabanas. So, as long as you're alive or as long as you're a member in good standing, technically it's all yours and you can do with it, with it what you like. No surprise that interior designers are figuring out ways to lavish lots of money on these cabanas and trick them out so they're ready for the pages of Architectural Digest. Mm, upscaling it, right? Yeah, I kind of like, like the way things used to be, right? Like, I don't need it to feel like the rooftop of the peninsula in Los Angeles. Like, you know, just give me a couple folding chairs. Adirondack chairs, fine. We'll call it a day. Anyway, moving on. All right, we've, we've covered the style world, Michael. Where else can you take us? Well... We have a terrific story this week, but it's also kind of a sad piece of reporting by our friend in Los Angeles, Mitch Glazer, and it concerns the historic Deauville Hotel down in Miami, which was a favorite of the Beatles, the Rat Pack, and JFK, but it's now headed the opposite way of all the cabanas. It's headed for demolition. Ugh, all good things are coming to an end these days, it feels like. Well, we've got Mitch here, luckily, to tell us exactly what we're going to be missing. Ashley, we're very fortunate this week to have a guy I've admired for a long time as a writer, Mitch Glazer, who has a wonderful, poignant reminiscence in the issue this week about the Deauville Hotel in his hometown of Miami, where he grew up, born and raised, and was the kind of um, home of many of your most important memories. But 
Your departure for writing this piece is the sort of sad news that broke this week as a jumping off point. So, Mitch, welcome to the show. I should say for the people listening at home, Mitch is a longtime Hollywood, wrote Scrooged, wrote Great Expectations. But more importantly to me, I am dating myself now. I grew up reading you in in Rolling Stone and Crawdaddy. So, uh, a great journalist as well. Bless you. Well... Bless us all. And uh, as, as Tiny Tim would say, another Dickens character. And uh, welcome to the show. Good to be here, guys. Really a pleasure. Wish it was under under happier circumstances in the world and, and in my own small part of it in Miami Beach. Uh, because, I mean, I was born and raised there. Probably one of three people actually born in Miami Beach. Everyone else came, comes from somewhere else. But, um, but I was born there and grew up, uh, born in Key Biscayne and grew up on Miami Beach, went to Beach High. And my connection to to the town, in some weird way, uh, fuels a lot of what I do. The series uh, Magic City that I created for Stars a decade ago was literally uh, informed by all the stories my dad had told me building those hotels. He did the electric, electrical engineering for the Eden Rock and the Fountain Blue and the Deauville and the Carillon and virtually every hotel built in the 50s and 60s in Miami Beach. And, you know, it's part of my DNA, that style of architecture and that period. So when I heard that uh, a hotel that I knew very well had worked in as a teenager and saw the Beatles in in 1964 on the Ed Sullivan Show with my sister and then set Magic City in, when I heard that it was being torn down, it broke my heart and, and felt like a typical unfortunately, typical Miami Beach way of, of looking at their, their own history. Well, I think you have that poignant line. You say that, you know, Miami Beach has always been a city that eats its own architectural history, right? Yes. I mean, there were moments of, of hope. Like, as I say in the article, there was a great woman named Barbara Capitman who literally just, just a, a citizen of Miami Beach who, when, he, when she saw the, the Deco district being threatened in the 80s, just couldn't bear it. And, and, and literally at one point, handcuffed herself, chained herself to, to the, I think, the Delano Hotel or the New Yorker Hotel to prevent the bulldozers from coming. And because, you know, the instinct down there is to raise uh, these buildings and put up more efficient, you know, more rooms, which happens all over the country, but Miami Beach is known for it. And truthfully, had they leveled the De- Deco District, much of the tourism from Miami Beach would have gone because it's, it's kind of that symbol of, uh, of the town as are those great mid-century hotels that Mars Lapidus and, in this case, with the Deauville, Mel Grossman designed. You know, that Rat Pack aesthetic, at least to my mind, is the symbol of Miami Beach. And Mitch, you first walked into the Deauville in 1957, I believe. You were a young boy. Your father took you there. As you mentioned, he was working on the hotel. Take us back to that time. When the hotel opened, what was it like? What were the glory days of the Deauville like? And what did it mean for you as a kid? Yeah, I was literally, as I say in the piece, <laughs> I mean, I don't exactly remember much of it, but my, my dad says he put me on his shoulders and walked me through the construction site at five. Miami Beach back then, you know, growing up there, it, it felt like the center of the universe to me. I mean, it was so glamorous in my mind, even as a kid. That And for a period of about four or five years, every year they would do another huge hotel opening. So originally it was the Fountain Blue, and then like a year later, the Eden Rock. It was like 55, 56, and then in 57, it was the Deauville. And, and each one of those were, were palaces and, and the excitement level in Miami Beach, and they opened with, you know, Sinatra or, or, you know, whoever, Nat King Cole, whoever the star of the day was, to huge press and fun, you know, fanfare and the excitement level in, in town when 
I mean, I can't believe I actually knew it, but I mean, you know, at six, seven, eight years old, hearing that Sinatra was playing in one of the hotels on the beach, the, the temperature rose in the city. I mean, it was very exciting, but it was always in those hotels. And the Deauville was the last of that run of, um, I mean, I think it was like 550 rooms. But then when my father got his tickets to see the Beatles in 64, I was 11. As I say in the piece, <laughs> you know, to be dropped in the middle of Beatlemania, full-blown riots, basically, at a hotel that I'd known as a kid, I just felt like the coolest person in America. It was amazing. You still are. <laughs> Thank you. Bless you. Thank you, Michael. No, well, well, I love how you describe it. You know, you, 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 but you said Deauville. Uh, you have a wonderful line. You say it was, it's, it's kind of the uh, Camilla Parker Bowles of Miami Beach, right, of the mid-century uh, queen consort to the Fontainebleau and the Eden Rock, right? It was, it was great, but it was always sort of like the lady-in-waiting a little bit too, right? Yes. It came in third, and they and it was named the, I don't know who actually voted this, but when I was doing the research, it was named the Hotel of the Year in 57. Uh, so in its own right, it was it was something. And, and you know, designed by, by uh, uh, Mel Grossman, who had done Acapulco Princess and Caesar's Palace later. And, and um, you know, so architect of repute, but in that vernacular of mid-century hotels that I just adore, and, um, you know, I, I, as a kid, we used to sneak into hotel dances there. And because, and, um, quite frankly, the tourists had much more fun than we did uh, during the holidays. And, and, and just to meet girls from Long Island was just so thrilling. So, so um, I remember it, you know, as a teenager and all the way through. And then, as I say, in the piece, I worked there in 73 as a cabana boy. Well, I started as a basically a janitor, but, but, but got a, a you know, a, on-field promotion, and and um, and that was kind of the, the dream at the time. Then to actually come back and shoot there at 50, or however old I was, Magic City, and to be writing for the location that I knew so intimately, you know, through my dad and, and, and working there and stuff, it gave me chills even on set. My personal feeling has always been to try to restore, to honor the period, as, as opposed to destroy it. And, and uh, I think there's a hunger for anything authentic uh, in architecture and, quite frankly, in life. And, and um, you know, whether it's Las Vegas or Miami Beach, the, the, those places should be treasured. And- I want to go back for a second, Mitch, because I want to touch on, well, you know, five years old, 11 years old. That's, those, are, those are interesting times, but kind of skirted over something. We just, I think we would be remiss for our listeners if we didn't touch on summer of 73 when you became, as you described, the Flamingo Kid of 67th and Collins as a cabana boy, right? I mean, there's not many guys who can say, I was a cabana boy in Miami Beach. So <laughs> just give us one one or two memories of, the, of, that, of that summer. The thing I remember most were those ladies I described. <laughs> uh, they were about four and a half feet tall, these fierce, super tan Jewish grandmothers who would grab me as I was walking by and say, you got to love my daughter. She's fantastic. She's coming down from college. It's going to be amazing. And literally, like Harvey Firestein, the voice coming from this tiny little body, as they were, by the way, gripping my, my hands, you know, like, and I, I never really actually met many of the daughters, but sweet that they, they thought that I should. And um, my job was to move the chaises so that they, they could catch the sun. 
every second that they were out on the cabanas. And to this day, I can I can unfurl and, and uh, open a, an umbrella like a complete professional. Well, Mitch, thank you so much, not only for your wonderful story, but also for this trip down memory lane uh, and for bringing the Doville back to our attention, right? This is an important piece of architectural and cultural history that is might soon be forgotten. So we really appreciate you bringing all of this rich detail to it. I love having it still be in the world. I mean, uh, you know, it, whether it's the images of Magic City or this conversation and the article, um, it deserves its place in history. It was a it was a beautiful place, a beautiful time. So thank you so much for having me. Thank you. Thanks so much, Mitch. We hope to see you back here again under much better circumstances. Promise, for sure. Always good to talk to Mitch Glazer. All right, Michael, the weekend is beckoning. But please, recommend something to help us pass the time. Okay, it's a show I'm very excited about. You know, we are in what I think is the season of the um, bad entrepreneur. We've got super pumped on on unlimited series about Uber. We've We've seen the dropout about Theranos. And now, this weekend, is the launch on Apple Plus TV of We Crashed, which is the story of WeWork, which at one point was worth $47 billion and then lost $40 billion in value before it could go IPO. Um, This is, you know, it stars Jared Leto as Adam Adam Newman and Anne Hathaway as Rebecca Newman. But it's, you know, as much about the launch of a co-working space as it is about codependent sociopathic relationships. Leto and Hathaway I can't get enough of them in this. They are just like chewing up the characters. They're both over the top for me in the best way. It's so crazy, but also to see their craziness brought to screen and you realize you get a glimpse inside their relationship and how, as I said, wasn't just co-working, it was codependent and how they just sort of fueled each other's kookiness as well as um, probably sociopathological tendencies. So I'm loving it. I would uh, suggest everyone tune in because it's very delicious. I love it. Thank you. And you, my dear? Well, last week we lost an incredible actor, William Hurt. He died at the age of 71. He was in so many great movies. So even though I'm technically on vacation in Spain, I am also not going to let anything interrupt my William Hurt Film Festival. We have some friends here with us and we started... (laughs) He started it last night with Body Heat. 1981, a complete classic starring William Hurt with Kathleen Turner. And it's like the most 80s-rific movie ever. It's completely ridiculous in many ways. It would never get made today for a variety of reasons, but it's still incredibly fun to watch. Um, He was just a fantastic actor and like such a sex symbol too. Like such an 80s sex symbol that we many of us have forgotten about, especially the younger generation. But if you really want to like encapsulate an era, like go back and watch Body Heat. It's just completely ridiculous. It's the story of, you know, kind of a small town lawyer in a tawdry part of Palm Beach who falls in love with this really wealthy woman who was married to some type of venture capitalist. And it all goes to hell, of course. And there's plot there. There's all kinds of things, but it's a lot of fun. And Kathleen Turner's fabulous in it too. And I'm from now on, the next time you see me, I'm only going to be wearing white high-waisted pants and silk blouses unbuttoned down to the navel. Get ready. That's so weird because I am too. So we'll, we'll just have to be competing for it. But no, you're right. I mean, an incredible run in the 80s from Eyewitness, Body Heat, Big Chill, Gorky Park, Kisses by... I mean, within eight, eight years, nine years, he uh, even, I think, ending sort of the decade with... Was it Accidental Tourist, I think? But 
Just a fantastic run of run of uh, performances. He won the Best Actor Oscar in 1986 for Kiss of the Spider Woman. He was nominated for Children of a Lesser God and Broadcast News and for Best Supporting Actor for History of Violence. So, I mean, this guy just had an incredible career. He grew up, he was born in 1950. He studied theology and then ended up going to Juilliard where he studied acting. Uh, his first major film role was in the Ken Russell horror movie Altered States. It's a small film he did before. It was, it was uh, it's called Eyewitness, and if you've never seen it, I don't know if it's available. It probably is, but it was. Um, it stars a very then unknown hurt, a young Sigourney Weaver, and uh, they play television news reporter and a janitor who team up to solve a murder. But it's got a script by a guy named Steve Tessage who. If you've ever seen the movie Breaking Away, he wrote that as well. But yeah, it's um, the William Hurt Film Festival. I I envy you in Spain watching that. Let me tell you, it's a pretty good way to pass the time. Speaking of time. Speaking of time. Thank you all for joining us. We wish you a restorative weekend. And Michael, will you please read us out? I would love to. But first, I just want to make a small announcement for readers of Airmail that as a benefit to members of Airmail, you're now able to share 30 days of Airmail membership for free with a friend. It's easy to do. You just have to click on the link at the bottom of your Saturday issue newsletter and input the email addresses of who you'd like to invite. So please feel free to share airmail and share the good news about morning meeting as well. Morning Meeting is produced by Airplay Productions and edited by Jesse Cannon. Our co-editors are Graydon Carter and Alexander Stanley. Our chief operating officer is Bill Keenan, and our deputy editors are Nathan King, Julie Vitale, and Chris Garrett. Our CMO is Emily Davis, and our music supervisor is Randall Poster. Our theme music is The Cute Monster by the Buddy Colette Quintet. A new edition of Airmail is published every Saturday, so please subscribe and enjoy all of our stories on airmail.news, which we update every day. You can also find us on Twitter and Instagram at Airmail Weekly. We will be back next Saturday with another edition of Morning Meeting. In the meantime, be sure and subscribe at Apple Music or Spotify. But most of all, thank you for joining us.